I'm Ainsley Earhart. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Katie Pavlich, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, March 27th, 2020. I'm Lisa Brady. A united front against a pandemic, the nonstop national effort to try to slow the spread of COVID-19 while caring for the growing numbers of patients. The number one thing I worry about is protecting our healthcare workers because they're the heroes on the front lines and we want to make sure they've got the equipment to protect themselves. I'm Chris Foster. Not that staying home during a pandemic isn't a good idea, but legally, says Judge Andrew Napolitano, Governors and mayors don't write laws, legislatures do. And therefore, when they issue a decree, thou shalt not do this, it is a suggestion and an intimidation. And I'm Guy Benson. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. A not-so-distant future for America. This is a country that was built on getting it done, and our people want to go back to work. I'm hearing, I'm hearing it loud and clear from everybody. During a White House briefing Thursday evening, President Trump highlighting what he told the nation's governors earlier, that new guidelines are in the works from federal health officials allowing low, medium and high risk designations around the country. That could make it easier for state and local officials to decide when to ease restrictions on residents. But the president's also emphasizing he doesn't mean a swift return to social business as usual. A lot of people misinterpret when I say go back. They're going to be practicing as much as you can social distancing and washing your hands and not shaking hands and all of the things that we talk about so much. His optimism echoed by Wall Street as a record relief package in Congress rallied the Dow right out of a bear market. But worldwide, COVID-19 has reached a milestone, over a half million cases. The U.S. taking the lead in that Johns Hopkins count Thursday evening with more than 82,000 cases, even as the nation bands together to do battle. We've made tremendous progress thanks to the great work of the folks at the CDC and the FDA over the last two months. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. In terms of testing, over 430,000 tests have been done just in the the day before yesterday. 65,000 tests uh, done just in one day alone. This is giving us a much better picture of where we stand in terms of the the disease spread. Obviously, um, our focus right now is on New York, in particular New York City and surrounding counties. And so we're surging personnel and equipment materiel in there working collaboratively with Governor Cuomo and uh, local health officials there to do that. And then supplies. Uh, You know, it's important for folks to remember that we're a private sector economy here. And the medical, surgical, pharmaceutical uh, supply industry in the United States is a trillion dollars. We have a small strategic national stockpile that buys about half a billion dollars a year of product that could be deployed in the event of a hurricane or tornado, but was never envisioned, funded, intended to replace the trillion-dollar private sector. So what we're doing now, the major priority right now, is working with the private sector industry to spool up production, to source material from anywhere in the world, and get that available into the private sector and surge it to the hot spots where it's most needed. Yeah, and I think, like you say, many people may not realize, you know, you can't just say, oh, I need, you know, 30,000 ventilators, and the federal government can just hand it to you. And likewise, 
while there are things that can be done to sort of compel industries to step up and make those things, it just isn't something that happens overnight. And I know the argument's been made in the administration, there's no reason to compel private companies to do something that's already being done when you have the automakers shifting gears, if you will, to make things like ventilators and other companies stepping up to pivot and make masks and sanitizer and things like that. But in terms of cooperation with the states, I mean, will things calm down on that front a bit once FEMA deliveries and once these extra amounts get to where they're going? What we have done in terms of supplies, we very early on got on this because we, in January we started working with the respirator makers. Those are the N95 masks that, that you see uh, hospital workers uh, use. Uh, we very early on in January started scaling up from the ability to make 250 million of those in the United States a year to be able to make 640 million in the United States. That's why we've been able to deliver tens of millions of additional respirators into our stockpile in March already, which are supplies that we are able to provide to New York and other hot spots around the country because we are on that early. Uh, we also were able to allow industrial N95s, which are the ones that construction workers and miners use, to be certified to use for healthcare workers. And then surgical masks, those are the more the flimsy gauze-like masks that people sometimes tie over their face. Um, we've actually conducted work to show that those can be used in most hospital settings, and those are much easier to produce. And we worked with great American manufacturers like Hanes to invent a cloth version of those surgical masks that is washable and reusable and that they can produce tens and tens of millions of in fast order. So we're on this right away under the president's direction. We've been producing. And as we work with American manufacturers, I'm talking with them every day. Uh, they're all just stepping up to the plate. During Thursday's briefing, the president's coronavirus response coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, pushed back hard on some reporting about shortages, dire enough to spur second thoughts about resuscitating coronavirus patients. To say that to the American people, to make the implication that when they need a hospital bed, it's not going to be there, or when they need that ventilator, it's not going to be there. We don't have an evidence of that right now. And it's our job collectively to assure the American people that it's our collective job to make sure that doesn't happen. She also cautions against models that predict big percentages of the population getting infected, emphasizing the importance of reality on the ground instead. But what about the president's push to get America back to work? I asked Secretary Azar if there's any exit strategy or if it's up to states that have stay-home orders in place. Well, it's important to remember in the U.S. system that we are locally led, state-managed, and federally supported. And so the local governments, your mayors, your county commissioners, and in some respects your governors, are going to be making the decisions about mandatory social distancing or community mitigation. What the president did with his 15 days to control this, to, to slow the spread, um, was provide guidance and recommendations, no mandates in there, but rather recommendations to communities around the country. As we come to the end of those 15 days, uh, the president's public health advisors, as well as his economic advisors, will be looking at the data and advising him, and he'll be trying to, to wrestle with the very tough balance between public health and economics. And by economics, 
I mean, economic dislocation has its own public health implications for people. Unemployment, economic distress, all have public health consequences also. So striking the right balance, and it may involve looking at community by community, that uh, communities in a real hot zone like New York City, uh, certain community mitigation steps might be more appropriate there than in a small town in rural Montana, say, that hasn't had any cases. Well, speaking of his team, we hear a lot lately from Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. Um, But every time Dr. Fauci in particular says something that may be taken as contradicting or disagreeing with something the president said, you know, a lot of hay is made about it um, in some circles. How's the morale on the team? You guys all getting along okay? So everyone's getting along okay. Listen, we're in a public health emergency of historic proportions, and that, I think, focuses everybody on the mission. This isn't about egos. It's not about territoriality, parochialism. That that has no place here. Right now it's about getting the job done, which is protecting the American people. That's what the president's asked of all of us. It's what all of us are committed to. I've, I've, seen, I've seen nobody who... Um, doesn't reflect that type of uh, attitude and teamwork. Uh, We put our egos aside and just get the job done. Many people may have heard about you being a former pharmaceutical executive, but they may not know that you spent years in the department you now run, Health and Human Services, both as a general counsel and a deputy. This is not your first rodeo with a major health crisis. I know you were part of the anthrax response in 2001, also the SARS outbreak. How does this compare to those situations? Well, you're, you, so thank you for mentioning that. And I, I've been around this department now for 20 years. Uh, I was a key leader as we dealt with 9-11, anthrax attacks, smallpox preparedness, SARS, monkeypox, pandemic flu, Ebola. I was actually one of the key architects uh, of the whole pandemic plan. And so this is exactly what, in 2005, I was one of the people most uh, calling out that we have to prepare for pandemic flu. And so for 15 years, this nation has actually had pandemic planning that's exercised. We have plans. We have playbooks that we use. That's what we've been working through. A lot of that being behind the scenes, though, from the public perspective, it may seem like things took too long to really start responding and and get going. I mean, is this the crisis that might spur some lasting fundamental changes, not just now in the moment, but, you know, differences in testing, drug supply chains, for instance? Well, the American people should know that their team under the president's leadership was on this really on day one, the minute the Chinese let us know about this happening, um, even through those unofficial channels. So we've been on it. We developed diagnostic testing immediately. We started securing personal protective equipment immediately. We developed a vaccine within three days of seeing the Chinese genetic sequence. That vaccine entered human trials eight weeks from its discovery, uh, which is historic speed, even with the high-throughput diagnostic testing. So what we're now seeing the fruits of, which is four hundred and over 430,000 diagnostic tests being completed already. We've done more in eight days than South Korea did in eight weeks. Um, the fruits of that are within really month, just a couple of months of the discovery of this virus. Normally, that would have taken taken six-plus months for companies like LabCorp, Quest, to have had high-throughput, high-speed you know, high testing in their workflow developed and, and developed and ready for validated and use for people. So we, we're, we're moving at historic speeds in every respect. Is there anything about this whole situation that kind of keeps you up at night? Is there one area where you're really concerned about falling short or wanting to do better? 
Well, the number one thing I worry about is protecting our healthcare workers because they're the heroes on the front lines, and we want to make sure they've got the equipment to protect themselves because they are going into harm's way. And so that's why the whole of government, whole of economy is focused on producing additional equipment for them to protect them and to allocate product to places like New York that are in the hot zone that, that need this right now. And there'll be other communities that need it in the future. So much of our supply chain, especially on the lower tech items like personal protective equipment, we're bound up in China. That's going to be a lesson for the future is that we cannot make ourselves dependent on one country just because it's low-cost production because we're realizing these medical supplies are actually strategic national supplies and we might have to pay more to make sure that we have access to them in America. Lastly, I just wanted to give you a chance to offer any message that you want to get out to the American public, to this sort of lockdown and concerned, (laughs) semi-lockdown and concerned nation of ours. I'd say two messages. Uh, One is continue to practice social distancing and personal hygiene. Look at the president's 15 days to slow the spread. Common sense guidelines for how you and your personal life, workplace or school or community can behave to protect yourself and your family. Um, That, I think, is very empowering just to know that you're not at the mercy of external forces only. There are things that you actually can do that make you and your family safer. The second is Um, Keep hope and understand there's light at the end of this tunnel. All diseases have a natural progression, whether that's seasonality or just the natural burn-off of disease. That happens. Um, It will happen. It's happening in other countries. So um, just just always remember that uh, they call it a curve for a reason. There's always a downslope of the curve. It, It will come. We're not there yet, but it'll come. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, Thanks for coming on The Rundown, sir. My pleasure. Good to be with you. This is Guy Benson with your Fox News commentary coming up. Millions of Americans are being told to just stay home unless it's absolutely necessary to help slow the spread of coronavirus, to protect each other, and to keep healthcare facilities from becoming overwhelmed. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot warn, We will not take any non-compliant behavior. This isn't guidance. This is an order that's enforceable by law. We're going to give you an admonition. And if you don't turn right away and head home, then you're going to get a citation. And if worse, yeah, we will take you into custody. Around the country, there are dozens of these warnings, directives, or at least advisories from state, county, and local governments. The decrees issued by various uh, mayors and governors are strong suggestions, intimidations, use of the bully pulpit. Fox News senior judicial analyst Judge Andrew Napolitano. Governor Andrew Cuomo here in New York is the the most effective at the use of the bully pulpit, but it's just a bully pulpit for several reasons. One, governors and mayors don't write laws, legislatures do, and therefore when they issue a decree, thou shalt not do this, It is a suggestion and an intimidation and and a good suggestion about how you should behave, but it cannot be backed up with the force of law. Second, some of the decrees that they are issuing interfere with what we call constitutional liberties and fundamental liberties. A fundamental liberty is a liberty you have even without the Constitution, like your right to worship or your right to move from A to B. These are rights that are in the highest category of those that the law protects, 
and it requires the government to jump through the, the most difficult hoops in order to interfere with them. What if police were to do something like, uh, say, just broaden the definition of a subjective crime like breach of peace? Could they use something like that? Well, they could use it for an arrest. I mean, they, they could arrest you for, as Bobby Kennedy once said of, uh, of Jimmy Hoffa, spitting on the sidewalk. They could arrest you for almost anything. The, the real question is, will, will it hold up? The purpose of the arrest is to intimidate. Uh, but they can't arrest unless they intend to prosecute, because if they arrest and they don't prosecute, then it's a false arrest and they're, they're exposed to, uh, to liability. So they can't, stated differently, they can't arrest you for breaching the peace if you're not breaching the peace. If 50 people gather in Central Park in New York City and they're all more than six feet apart, they are not even violating any uh, provision that the, uh, of the governor or the mayor's edicts, and they are not breaching the peace, and they can't legally be interfered with. And the what public if, needs to know that. What if they're holding hands and playing Ring Around the Rosie, though? Is there a, a well, legal that case? Not, that is not a crime. It is dangerous behavior, but it's not a crime. And, and the police would use their presence, the, the, the moral suasion that comes with the gun and the badge and the uniform, uh, to break it up. But are they going to put them in handcuffs and take them away? Absolutely not. You're a, um, uh, any type of, of a cleric uh, performing any type of a religious ceremony, and the people and the police knock on your door because they want to know how many people are there, don't answer. Unless they have a warrant, you don't even have to say hello. Yeah, there's a church, uh, one of those big churches in Louisiana, that's had services the last couple of Sundays with a thousand people each. And I think that's dangerous, uh, unless they're more than six feet apart. But it's not only lawful; it's expressly protected by the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. And the state is powerless, powerless to interfere with that. Now, the state often does a lot of things that it is technically powerless to do, and then it ends up paying a price for it when the crisis uh, passes and the lawsuits start. Uh, the governor of Florida has, I, I, I'm, I'm certain he can't order this, but he has strongly suggested that anybody coming to Florida, as a lot of people do from the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, once they get to Florida, self-quarantine for 14 days. I'm sure that's not legally enforceable, but once again, it's a bully pulpit thing, right? Correct. I, and again, I do not blame them for using the bully pulpit, though I disagree with Governor Cuomo on many, many things he has done and said. His use of the bully pulpit is brilliant and effective. If that's what Governor DeSantis in Florida is intending to do, it's certainly within the bounds of the law and the Constitution. But if he actually restrains people... If you fly from New York to Fort Lauderdale and they won't let you uh, leave the airport, A, that interferes with interstate commerce, which it would be a violation by the governor or whoever put into effect this, uh, this edict, and B, it's a restraint on your ability to travel, which you can't do. The only way they can quarantine you without your consent is A, if you are actively contagious, and B, if you refuse to restrain yourself. So this character in New Jersey, who earlier this week coughed on a cashier at Wegmans in a dispute over the price of a dozen eggs, you can't make this up. And then after he coughed on her, said, by the way, I have coronavirus. So this caused a tremendous disturbance. People fled. The police came. The guy got arrested. The governor heard about it. The governor ordered the prosecutors to charge this guy with making a terroristic threat. The state overreacted. 
if he truly was contagious, well, then he's committed a very serious assault. If he was not contagious, he did commit a, a, a simple assault and a simple uh, harassment. Here's another one. The Justice Department is proposing uh, suspending habeas corpus to delay court proceedings during this national emergency, basically saying, OK, this defendant can be detained indefinitely until we have declared uh, this is passed. Uh, knowing you, you're very much against this idea. When Madison wrote the Constitution, the prohibition on suspending habeas corpus is in the body of the Constitution. They didn't even wait to put that into the uh, into the Bill of Rights. That's because of the tremendous abuse of it that had been visited upon the colonists by the king and his agents. And in fact, the right to habeas corpus is guaranteed in the Magna Carta uh, a thousand years, almost 800 years earlier. Habeas corpus is the right to be brought before a judge within a reasonable period of the time of your arrest. In most parts of the United States, it's 24 hours. In New York, because of the crowded conditions, it's 48. If the government could lock somebody up and throw away the key, it could lock up anybody it wanted. It could lock up Nancy Pelosi, Tucker Carlson, Judge Napolitano, anybody that's a Joe Biden, anybody that's a critic uh, of the government, the FBI would have carte blanche to do that. This happened twice in American history, once by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War and once by the Bush administration and Congress right after 9-11. Both times the Supreme Court invalidated it because that turns us from a democracy into a tyranny. We have thousands of jail and prison inmates being uh, let go. I don't know if their sentences are being commuted or if they're going to be politely asked to return uh, while all this plays out. Now, obviously, prisons and jails are a breeding ground for during a pandemic like this. It's dangerous for the inmates. It's dangerous for the staff. It's hard to manage. What obligation do states and the feds have and counties have here to balance the health and safety of the people in its custody and, and, and having justice be done and, and, having, and, and serving the safety of those on the outside? This is a very, very difficult problem, Chris, because most state courts are closed, meaning if a person has been sentenced to jail for more than a year, meaning they're in a long-term uh, facility. They can't just be sprung by the jailer or the prosecutor who sent them there. Uh, they would have to be sprung by a judge. For a judge to do that, the judge would need to know a lot of information about the person's background in order to evaluate whether it is safe to release them. I don't know how they're doing that when the courts are not sitting. So you have the, the imprisoned person on one television screen, his lawyer on another television screen, the prosecutor on a third television screen, the judge on a fourth television screen, the judge with minimal materials in front of him because he's not in his courthouse where he has all of his law clerks to get all these documents for him, like the, the record of the person that he sentenced. And he's got to make a quick decision as to whether or not this person should go out. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. My understanding is that the initial wave of people being released are elderly. I don't like the word, but for personal reasons, meaning <laughs> over, over 65 and nonviolent. Huh. If you're over 65 and nonviolent, you probably don't belong in jail anyway. But they're there, presumably, for a valid reason. That's the first uh, wave of people that are being released, state and federal. Beyond that, I don't know where it's going to go. Uh, I, I will tell you this, if a person is exposed in a prison, the government has the duty to care for them. That means isolate them and get them the appropriate medical treatment. The large, large prisons do have hospitals, and the large city hospitals have prison wards, so there are places in which this can be done. 
Uh, Attorney General William Barr, one more question. Uh, says the DOJ is going to go after uh, medical supply price gougers and hoarders. If you are have a big supply of toilet paper in your house, this is not something you have to worry about. But if you are sitting on a, on a warehouse uh, with masks, uh, surgical masks, you will be hearing a knock on your door. Can the government step in by executive order and suspend free market in a situation like this? I mean, the suspension of the free market, the, the, the uh, invalidation of the laws and supply, of supply and demand is why we have a lot of the problems uh, that we do. The, the free market would allow prices to rise and fall depending upon supply and demand. So if you, would you rather have $10, pay $10 a roll for a toilet paper or have no toilet paper? If you pay $10 a roll, the seller and the manufacturer will have an incentive and the capital with which to make a lot more rolls because they'll know that demand is, is way up. So not only does price and demand assure no hoarding, it assures that information gets back to the seller and the manufacturer that there is more of a demand for this stuff. And because they want to make profit, they will start making this stuff 24 hours a day. Can the government interfere with it? The government interferes with it all the time, and usually when it does so, it makes things worse. Judge Andrew Napolitano, Fox News senior judicial analyst, answering a few legal questions related to the pandemic. Judge, thanks a lot for coming on. Always a pleasure, Chris. It's the latest from Fox News Podcasts, The Campaign with Brett Baer. With updates from reporters on the trail and in-studio experts, Brett keeps you informed on the 2020 race. Go to foxnewspodcast.com and download The Campaign with Brett Baer now. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. While many businesses are closed and more people are staying at home to curb the spread of the coronavirus, one New York City restaurant is doing its part to help the medical community. Terra Lucia Vino is a popular Italian restaurant in Manhattan, and like many places, it's now only serving its famous spaghetti al pomodoro and other dishes for takeout or delivery. But they're also collecting donations to provide meals to healthcare workers at the city's hospitals. Luca Di Pietro is the owner and has launched a website where people can donate, and that's already generated more than 450 meals across several hospitals. He enlisted the help of his daughter and her classmate after the two returned home when their university suspended in-person classes. He says he's trying to help the medical community and keep some of his staff working. He's already had to lay off some workers. The website, Feed the Frontlines, allows people to donate meals starting at $25, and it says it's raised more than 49000 of its goal, which is $140,000. If you'd like to learn more about how to donate, go to feedthefrontlinesnyc.org. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Guy Benson, what's on your mind? There's a mom-and-pop restaurant right around the corner from where we live. My family eats there once every week or two. We know the owners. It's a great spot. Because of the coronavirus crisis, they've had to effectively lay off 80% of their workers, people that we know. The hope is to hire them back one day once we're through this, but that seems to be a moving target, and question marks abound. Similar scenes are playing out all across the country. There is, of course, a major role for government intervention in a crisis like this to help the American economy where it's no business's fault. It's a global pandemic. But we can also do 
a small part as well. We are ordering takeout every few days from local restaurants, and I bought a large gift certificate to use after the crisis is over to help give them some cash now. That's not possible for everyone, but if it's possible for you, please consider it. We're in this together, and small businesses need our help. This is Guy Benson, host of The Guy Benson Show. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Download and make it Hammer Time with Bill Hammer. Trey Gowdy, welcome. So if the department is going to start issuing, making public investigations about people that you don't even have enough information to charge, that is a slippery slope. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.